Thank you so much, Logan, for leading in song this morning. It was so encouraging. And Lauren, thank you for your introduction. You, set, you made us sound way cooler than we are. And the reason I say that is Sheldon did not race cars when I met him. He raced toy cars, <laughs> RC cars, which Lauren made him sound really cool. <laughs> RC cars are not quite as cool. Um, Though, anyways, I knew some of you, some of you know Sheldon, and we'll go, would have gone up afterwards and asked him about his experience racing cars. Just know it was toy cars. Though he was very good, and he did it semi-professionally, so, but um, <laughs> it was not actually cars. Um, <laughs> I am just thrilled to be here this morning. I, just, I love Every Woman's Grace. This ministry is has been such a gift to me personally, to my family. Um, since coming in 2012, this was, I was, rec- I was advised as soon as I got here to get plugged into the women's ministry. Um, and it has just been, it has reaped huge rewards and blessing in my own life as it has, as it has um, help sanctify me as it has helped me understand God's word better. Um, the, the relationships that I have formed through this ministry. Uh, so many of you, you godly women have been such an encouragement to me, um, forming Titus II relationships that have taught me, that have instructed me and encouraged me. And so many of you have prayed, um, for me just through the years, even this week as I prepared to teach. And I can't even express to you how much I love this ministry and how much um, and how thankful I am for this opportunity. I am really, really excited about what God has been teaching me in Genesis 5 through 11. I, I can't wait to share it with you this morning. I'm, I'm just really excited. When I first found out that we would be studying the Pentateuch, this was back in early summer, I immediately got my kids together and I said, okay, we are going to begin reading through the Pentateuch as a family in our, in our family devotions and let me tell you, as some of you probably know who have done similar things, Genesis was really interesting to read with kids. It, it was. As Paul Twist said in his overview of the Pentateuch in September, he said, Genesis is full of scalawags. That was, that was Paul's word, not mine. Um, and as we read through this book... I felt, this, is, this literally happened almost every day as we read every single chapter. My 10-year-old, Evelyn, as we would finish, she'd look at me and she'd go, Mom, that's bad, right? <laughs> and I, Yes, you know, Genesis doesn't necessarily tell you something that happened is bad, but it was definitely bad. My kids were right. There is a lot of bad in Genesis, and there is a lot of bad that's happening today in our culture. And I wonder, do you find yourself discouraged as you look at today's society? Do you become anxious, perhaps, as you raise your children or invest in your grandchildren in a world that's so hostile to God? Do you find it difficult to work in an environment or go to school in an environment surrounded by people who hate what God loves and who love what God hates? Have you wondered, how can a holy God like ours even put up with such widespread wickedness? I know that I can barely read the news or open social media without being overwhelmed by the wickedness of our society. Whether it's violence in the Middle East or rioting in our own streets, we see hatred and division over every type of issue. Sensuality and perversion are paraded in front of us, and we're demanded that not only we accept it, but that we approve of it. In our society, hatred is now a virtue, and perversion is praiseworthy. We need, ladies, to understand how to think rightly about these issues. We need to understand how to live godly while surrounded by so much evil. And by God's grace, Our lesson today will help us do just that. Let's pray and ask God for help. Dear Father, I just ask that you keep me from error. 
Help me to communicate clearly. Let your word go forth. Your Holy Spirit do its work, instructing and teaching the hearts of these women. And Lord, ultimately use all of this for your glory. Amen. All right, our text today is Genesis 5 through 11, and we're going to break these chapters down into two main categories. In chapters 5 through 7, we're going to look at the worldwide judgment. And in chapters 8 through 11, we're going to look at worldwide grace. In our text today, God responds in these two ways towards sinners and demonstrates his hatred of sin and his grace towards sinners. My hope for us today is that when we're done looking at Genesis 5 through 11, that you will better understand how much God hates sin and how gracious he is towards sinners so that you will be strengthened today to live godly lives in our wicked world. As we consider how to live godly lives in this generation, we are helped by considering God's hatred towards sin manifested in worldwide judgment. If you haven't already, please open up in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 5. As we begin reading in Genesis chapter 5, we're going to see the chap- that this chapter starts with a restatement of Genesis 1, 27 through 28. Genesis 5, 1 and 2 says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. In Genesis 5, 1 and 2, we are reminded that man was made in God's image. But sadly, after the terrible events of Genesis 3 and 4, it has now become abundantly clear that mankind no longer reflected God's image in the way that God originally intended. His reflection was distorted. Man's personality, his character, and his relationships had all been corrupted by sin. He no longer represented God on earth truthfully. Adam's sin did not erase the image of God in man, but it imputed sin to the entire human race. In Adam, all sinned. And mankind was now left hardly recognizable as the glorious creation that they once were. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the forbidden tree, God made good on his promise that they would surely die. In that moment, they died spiritually, and the countdown towards their physical death began. Here, in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, we see the final fruition of Adam's sin, Adam's own physical death. Adam, who was formed from the dust and brought to life by the very breath of God himself, breathed his last and returned to the dust from which he was made. And so begins this genealogy of Adam. Eight times in this chapter, we see the phrase, and he died. Now, the children of Adam, they reflected their father more closely than their creator. They were born in in Adam's image And they shared the consequence of Adam's sin, death. What a tremendous plunge the fall of Genesis 3 was. God's masterpiece was now a broken ruin, and mankind, the crown of God's creation, was now completely corrupted. As the population increased, wickedness increased right with it. Mankind, they grew in their love for evil, and they created a society that was so wicked that God would say every intention of their hearts was only evil continually. The wickedness of society during the time of Noah was even further increased by a unique demonic influence in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Now, ladies, Satan had not forgotten God's prophecy in the garden in Genesis 3.15. He had not forgotten that the promised seed of the woman would one day destroy him and crush his head. In what seemed to be an effort to thwart God's redemptive plan, demons possessed men, and they forcibly took beautiful women as their wives and propagated their own physical offspring. Our pastor says of this wickedness, 
that this produced an unnatural union which violated the God-ordained order of human marriage and procreation. Now, here in these four verses, I know there's a lot that's hard to understand and a lot that is difficult to interpret. But what we do know is that this specific sin, it crossed the boundaries in both the physical and the spiritual realm. Somehow, through some strange sexual union, demons possessed men and created a cursed offspring. As one pastor says, it was a blending of two realities through sensuality and perversion. Through this wicked union, an offspring was born. A race of mighty men influenced by demons and completely devoted to wickedness. This assault on God's original purpose for man was so great that if you go to Jude 6, it tells us that the demons who participated in this wickedness were bound by God in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The spiritual and the physical impact of this sin was so severe and so pervasive that by the time we get to Noah, there is nobody outside of Noah's immediate family who had not been, who had not been corrupted. In Genesis 6, 5, we see God's divine perspective on this corruption when he comments on the current state of Noah's society. Here, we have a window into God's heart. What God saw when he looked at the condition of his once very good world. When God looked at the wickedness of the world, his perspective was that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. What an indictment. This speaks, ladies, of every motive, of every thought. Every thought gave birth to all kinds of wickedness continually. And nothing Nothing in the pre-flood world held back or restrained this type of full-scale depravity. There was no depth that could not be reached. But, lest we look at these previous verses in Genesis 6, 1 and 4, and think that the primary sin of the pre-flood world was that of the angels, verse 5 makes it explicitly clear. This evil was mankind's evil. The wickedness of mankind was great. And Yahweh regretted that he had made mankind on the earth. The only solution now for the sin-rotten world was complete destruction. God's perspective was that mankind was desperately wicked. And God's tolerance towards these rebellious and broken image bearers was about to expire. But how did God react to his diagnosis of mankind? Genesis 6, 6 and 7 says, And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. These verses are full of emotional language. God regretted his creation. He desired to blot it out, to erase it, to utterly destroy all that he had made. The earth that he had formed and filled, the plants that he had given to Adam and Eve and their descendants for food, the animals that he had made and brought before Adam to be named and to be cared for. Man, the crown of his perfect creation, about to be annihilated. Yahweh regretted. He grieved. He was sorry. But you might ask, what does this mean? Was God's plan thwarted? by the demonic influence upon humanity? Maybe God lost control of his creation and it forced his hand to destroy it and recreate it. Perhaps God is like us, emotionally unsettled, unsure of his plans. No, 
This is what's called an anthropopathism. Scripture here is attributing human emotions to God. Ladies, God does not have emotions like we do. He is impassable. That's the theological word. If you want to go home later and look it up, he's impassable. He does not fluctuate between happiness and sorrow, between fear and anger. God is not moved in his being by the actions of his creatures because he ordains everything that comes to pass. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Psalm 115.3. In Genesis 6, when we come to this language, we need to be careful. Don't read back into God our human emotions. Because of the depth of God's essence that can't be communicated simply, we have an accommodation here. It helps to express God's hatred and displeasure with sin. This language helps us understand the depth of God's displeasure, but we don't want to push the analogy too far. Emotional descriptions like this are here to help us understand God's nature. God's plan was not thwarted, but here we express we he, here we see God express his understanding of the cost that comes with his plan. And in God's plan, he will demonstrate his divine prerogative. God, as creator and king of his creation, has the right to judge and the right to show mercy. The first divine prerogative we see is God's right to judge sin. Genesis 6, 12 and 13, it says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was very corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy the earth. Notice with me the change of language in these verses. Earlier in verses five through seven, we saw our gracious creator lamenting the defilement of his good and perfect creation. However, in verses 12 and 13, we don't see emotional language anymore. The righteous judge of the earth, he had now looked at his creation. He had seen the wickedness of his creatures. And here, our just and our holy God passes his sentence. God said, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. God had appointed a day of judgment and God had appointed the means by which he will accomplish it. A worldwide judgment through a worldwide flood. Every inch of the world would be submerged from the lowest valley to the highest mountaintop. Every life on the earth's surface would be put to death for sin. God's image bearers, broken beyond repair, rotten to the core and full of violence and every kind of evil were deserving of their destruction. God's holiness would finally be vindicated and God's wrath against their sin would be satisfied. But God, but God, as creator of the universe, not only had the prerogative to judge his creatures, he also takes pleasure in showing mercy. While God's holiness was offended at the global corruption and the ruin of his rotted out creation, and as he prepared to pour out his holy judgment, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah stood alone against a flood of wickedness and he preached God's righteousness and his coming judgment upon humanity. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He proclaimed the holiness of God, God's hatred for sin and his impending judgment against all the ungodly and their pervasive wickedness. Judgment was coming. But God had not forgotten his promise to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.15. 
a promise to send a seed to crush the serpent, a promise to make all things right again. A complete destruction of the human race would make this promised redemption impossible to keep. Satan's head had not been crushed yet. On the contrary, at this time in history, everything appeared to point to the the fact that Satan had successfully and irrevocably ruined God's creation. If things had ended for humanity right here in Genesis 6, God's promise would have been broken. In order for redemption and in order for restoration to one day come, someone had to survive this judgment. So Noah found grace because God gave grace. And sisters, isn't this how we've come to know our God? He has seen our sin and he despised it. He had the prerogative to judge us. And yet we, like Noah, we have found grace. In Genesis 5 and 6, we have seen God's divine perspective of his fallen creation and his holy prerogative as king of his creation to judge their sin. The wickedness of mankind deserved worldwide judgment. And now we will see against this backdrop of righteous judgment, his sovereign acts of worldwide grace. As we move into chapter 7 of this narrative, God's judgment is about to be poured out on the earth. God would judge, but he had a plan to preserve his creatures through Noah and his family. All that was necessary to repopulate the earth and fill it once again would make it onto that boat. Through God's preservation of Noah, humanity would be saved and God's plan of redemption would continue. Blameless Noah, following God's instructions to the letter, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. By faith, he perfectly adhered to God's specifications. God, executing his sovereign plan of salvation perfectly, brought pairs of animals according to their kind to Noah. Once his chosen representatives of all of his creatures had boarded the ark, God himself shut the door. For 40 days and 40 nights, the rain of God's wrath poured upon the earth. And according to verse 22, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. All of God's world was submerged in a flood of God's judgment. All of his creatures who lived on dry land died. However, God remembered his promise to Adam and Eve, and he remembered righteous Noah. And after one year and 10 days on the ark, Noah, his family, and the animals set foot again on dry land. Once God's wrath was satisfied, God purposed within himself to start again with creation. But this time, all of humanity and all of society would be built upon the foundation of covenant. Starting in Genesis 8.20, God would make a covenant with all creation, the Noahic covenant. As soon as Noah disembarked from the ark, he offered two of every kind of clean animal and bird that had been saved with him. The Lord was pleased with Noah's sacrifice, and he accepted his worship as a pleasing aroma. It was a sacrifice of praise and a thanksgiving of worship from a genuine heart of love and gratitude to God for his grace. As we move on to verse 21, though, we once again get a peek into the heart of God. We get a view again from God's perspective, a window into a divine self-deliberation. And what we find here, ladies, is really interesting. Remember just a couple of chapters back in Genesis 6-5? How it said, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This widespread wickedness of humanity was the catalyst for worldwide judgment in in chapter 6. But here in Genesis 8.21, once all the earth had been judged and only Noah's family remained, 
we have a very similar statement. The Lord says here in verse 21 that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. When it came to the heart of man, nothing really changed between Genesis 6 and Genesis 8. While humanity may have been rescued on the ark, his sin problem was the same. Original sin had not been eliminated with the flood. But here... In verse 21, mankind's wickedness is not a harbinger of judgment as it was in chapter 6. In Genesis 8, 21, man's incurable evil prompted grace. Grace that's worldwide, undeserved, sin-restraining, and totally necessary. Even though the wickedness of man was still a justifiable motivation for judgment, God did the opposite. Because of man's wickedness, God purposed within himself to never kill all living creatures again. Instead, God resolved within himself that no matter how wicked man's heart is, there would always be a dependable grace in the the post-flood world. God had purposed this within his heart, but now in chapter 9, verse 1, God moved on from his self-deliberation and he spoke directly to Noah and his family and he blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." Noah was, in a way, a second Adam, a new father for the human race and the recipient of God's blessing. Like in the original creation mandate that we studied in Genesis 1 and 2, God told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. This time, though, as God blessed this new first family and the creatures that he preserved, things were a little bit different. Mankind's relationship to the animals would be different. He gave not only every kind of plant to people for food, but also the animals, though he did prohibit eating blood. God also re-emphasized the unique place that people hold within his creation. They are created in God's image. Because of this, there's a very special value placed upon their lives different than the value that's placed upon animals or any other created thing. The world that so quickly descended to the point that it was full of violence in chapter 6 now was being recreated with a new institution, capital punishment. The first law in human society had been established by God himself, and its purpose was to uphold the imago dei, the image of God within man. Now, if a man's life was taken either by beast or by man, their life would be required of them. Death would be the rightful penalty for any destruction of God's image bearer. The establishment of this institution and the human governments that would need to be established to enforce it would be a huge grace given to sinful mankind. By instituting this punishment, and putting this high value on human life, God was creating a society that would have built-in restraints. God, in his providence, would not allow society to return to the same place that it did before the flood, necessitating the full destruction of all living things. One of the ways that society and wicked hearts would be restrained would be through human government and the required penalty for taking the life of another. 
In Genesis 8, 21 and 22, God had purposed within his heart to not kill every living creature again. But here in chapter 9, verse 8 through 17, God makes this internal purpose of his heart known to Noah by establishing with Noah his covenant. Let's start reading in in verse 8 of chapter 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Ladies, this is the first covenant in all of history. It is a glorious covenant. Because of this covenant, creation would experience a rest from the catastrophic effects and the breakneck momentum of sin as it waits for the perfect rest and the, that the promised seed will bring. Society will one day return to a similar corruption as in the days of Noah, but the Noahic covenant, it ensures that it will not happen prematurely. This covenant was made with Noah, but it extended to his family and to the entire earth, every living creature. What a gracious covenant. The dark clouds of God's judgment that drowned Noah's generation were swept away by the rainbow of God's grace as it burst through the sky. Our great God, declaring his promise, his covenant, established to restrain his judgment. And from this point on, sisters, Yahweh would be known as a covenant-making and a covenant keeping God. As proof of God's promise, God placed his rainbow in the sky as a permanent sign for all generations to come. So the next time you see a beautiful rainbow stretching through the sky, remind yourself that even in that very moment, God is pouring out mercy on his creation. The Noahic covenant is God's promise to restrain his judgment. And because judgment is restrained, we can also assume that wickedness is restrained. And one important example of how God restrains society's wickedness is just a, just a few generations after the flood when we get to the Tower of Babel. Please turn now with me to Genesis chapter 11. As we come to Genesis 11, we see that the flood is over. And civilization is booming. In accordance with God's command in Genesis 9-1, Noah and his sons and their wives were being fruitful and multiplying. Chapter 10 traces Noah's three sons and their families as they grew and as they began to disperse across the face of the earth. But in Genesis 11, there's a holdup on the plains of Shinar. Verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here, we see humanity rebelling again, only a few generations after global judgment. The people were unified in their rebellion with one language and one plan, and it was not for God's glory. What incredible defiance. What high-handed rebellion. These families were unified in their disobedience and seeking their own glory. God had created them for the purpose of reflecting his glory as image bearers, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. God had commanded them to fill the earth with his glory as his representatives by dispersing across the face of the earth. But they said, 
Let us build. Let us stay. Let us defy God's purpose and commands. And they built a tower, a monument to their own glory. In verses 5 through 6, God saw this. He saw their tower and their stubborn rebellion against their creator. Verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do now will be impossible for them. God came down, God saw. From man's perspective, the Tower of Babel was a masterpiece. It stretched upward to the heavens, exalting their greatness. However, from God's perspective, Babel was utterly unimpressive. Babel's glory was its height, which man said would have its top in the heavens. But no matter how high their tower was, it would always be beneath God. And this is exactly the response that God gives us. It was so small and so unimpressive from God's perspective that the text says that God had to come down to see it, to see this pathetic structure that these self-focused and small-minded humans had built. But while their attempt at glory was insignificant from God's perspective, their hearts of united rebellion was disastrous. God was not saying in verse 6 that he was worried about what kind of greatness they would accomplish. This was instead an acknowledgement by God that in this state of united rebellion, their potential for wickedness had no limits. If left unrestrained, they would have quickly reached a degree of wickedness that would once again usher the human race into worldwide judgment. But ladies, consider with me how different God's response at Babel was compared with Genesis 6. The generation of Noah received judgment, but the descendants of Noah received grace. Verses 7 through 9 shows us a unique grace with worldwide implications. Beginning in verse 7, it says, Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Ladies, this is grace. These people deserved to be judged for their high-handed treason against the creator of the universe. The only just response for these criminals was complete annihilation. Their hearts were unified and set on pursuing vain glory and rebelling against God's plan and his purpose. But in the face of this wholesale rejection of God's design and this assault against God's authority, he did not destroy them. Instead, God set into motion circumstances that would not only restrain the wickedness of the society at Babel, but every future generation to follow. At Babel, God restrained the wickedness by confusing their languages. By confusing their languages, God instantaneously dismantled their unity. The very communication that they used to devise and do evil was destroyed, and they had no way to talk to one another about their evil ideas. Without the ability to effectively communicate, there was no benefit to live together anymore. So all the different language groups dispersed throughout the world. Without this setback of a loss of communication leading to worldwide dispersion, mankind would have continued to unite around one wicked goal, and they would have quickly become the kind of society that God destroyed in Genesis 6. Now, the text does not explicitly say 
that God's kindness at Babel was because of the Noahic covenant. But it seems best to take the Noahic covenant as the foundation for God's grace at Babel. God promised to never again bring a worldwide flood and destroy all living creatures. So when God confused the languages and when God dispersed the peoples, he stayed his hand of judgment and he protected that generation and every future generation from becoming as evil and united in wickedness as the Noahic generation. And sisters, this is very important because something really big is about to happen in redemptive history in Genesis 12 something that would build upon the Noahic covenant, something that would be more personal, more specific, more particular than the universal grace of the Noahic covenant. At the end of our chapter in Genesis 11, and just a few generations after Babel, one of the most important characters in the whole Bible is born. His name is Abram, and through Abram, later called Abraham, all the nations would receive grace that surpasses that of the Noahic covenant. Ladies, in this lesson, we've been viewing everything from a bird's eye perspective. We've been thinking big picture about man's sinfulness, God's holiness, and God's lavish grace that's been given to all men. But I would be remiss if I didn't circle back just a little bit to cover some of the finer details of this chap- of these chapters. We'll briefly descend from our bird's eye view so that we can see some essential details that have immense implications, not only for the Pentateuch, but for the whole Bible. God is kind to all of his creatures, and the Noahic covenant reveals this part of God's heart. But there was something else going on in this text during the same time that God was acting in worldwide judgment and worldwide grace. There was something else happening when God was making a covenant with every creature. God was calling specific people to himself so that he might grant special mercy. These people did not just receive common grace, but a specific grace, not only universal grace, but particular grace. From the garden, we've seen a line of people chosen by God for relationship. Adam and Eve, as after they disobeyed and catapulted the entire human race into sin, were clothed in the skins of an animal, the first creature to die. It was not Adam and Eve who killed this animal, but God himself. The first animal sacrifice was made by God to cover their shame. At that time, God made his first promise to his corrupted humanity, a promise of future redemption, a foreshadowing of atonement. Abel worshiped God by offering the best of his flock as a sacrifice to Yahweh, and God accepted his worship. Abel pleased God, but was soon murdered by his brother Cain because he was jealous that Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable. With Seth came the beginning of the messianic line of the seed. It was during his lifetime when public worship began and people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Enoch prophetically named his son Methuselah, which literally means when he dies, it shall be sent. The year Methuselah died, God judged all the earth with the flood. Enoch knew the character of God and understood his hatred for sin because he walked with God. Enoch did not die a normal death like the rest of humanity though. Instead, Genesis 5.24 says that he was not for God took him. Enoch stands out as never dying in a world of death a testament of God's original purpose for mankind, walking with God and never tasting death, a foreshadowing of what's going to be for all of God's people. Lamech, the grandson of righteous Enoch, was the father of Noah. Lamech looked forward to God's promised future rest and redemption from the curse. He prophesied of his son Noah saying, out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And then there was Noah. In a world where there was none righteous, Noah found favor. As one who was righteous and blameless in his generation, Noah also walked with God. While the whole earth was corrupt, sprinting towards judgment, Noah demonstrated his faith in God by building the ark exactly as God commanded. While the pre-flood world ate and drank and married, living their best life now, Noah faithfully preached the righteousness of God. He relentlessly preached 
to his evil generation until the last day when God shut the door of the ark and drowned them all. After God's judgment, Noah received the promise of God's covenant, which would preserve the whole earth. Noah fathered three sons, but it would be through his son Shem that God's promised seed would come. We see in Genesis 9 and 10 that it would be through Shem's descendants that redemptive history would march forwards as each successive person in his family line is chosen as the line of the seed continues to narrow. We will see this more closely next week in the next phase of God's redemptive plan when we come to Abraham and the glory of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. But first... Before we get to the Abrahamic covenant and before this lecture concludes, you need to understand how the Noahic covenant fits into God's redemptive plan. How does this magnificent display of God's grace fit alongside his particular grace to his elect? How does the Noahic covenant relate to all of God's redemptive plan and all of the covenants to follow? The Noahic covenant is the first covenant in the Bible. It undergirds all the covenants to come. It's unilateral, universal, and permanent. And here's the important part. Its institution preserves sinful mankind from global judgment for the purpose of the salvation of God's elect. We see then that the protection of the human race through God's covenant with Noah is essential for God's redemptive plan. God cannot fulfill the promises of Genesis 3.15 or the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the new covenant without it. The world must first survive long enough for him to establish these covenants and to save all of his elect from every generation. God's covenant with Noah reveals how God is patient with the wicked for the sake of his elect. If there was no particular grace, there would be no reason to extend worldwide grace. If God did not intend to save some, he would not be inclined to save any. He would only act in judgment since that is the ultimate fate for those who will never love him. Dear friends, God has already judged the earth once. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. And when his righteous judgment is poured out, it is terrible and it is total. 2 Peter 3, 5, and 9 instructs us that the fact that God has judged the world once should give us confidence that once he has rescued all of his elect from the ages, he will return to judge the earth again. We live in a world surrounded by evil where even God's rainbow is now used as a sign of rebellion against God's created design. Rather than rejoicing in the true meaning of the rainbow, our society flies its colors to celebrate the same kind of wicked sin that moved God's hand to destroy Noah's generation in a worldwide flood. And friends, this meets us where we are right now. As our society decays around us, these truths matter to us today. Sisters, in your families, remember your kids, your siblings, your parents. They're watching your example. Noah lived before his family day in and day out, proclaiming God's righteousness and his coming judgment. And when it came time to board the ark, his family followed him. His life Convince them of his message. Let us also live lives of integrity and sincerity before our families so that they might see our reverence for God's holiness, our love for righteousness, and they'll glorify our great God. In your job or your school, remember, God sees the wickedness around you. He is not apathetic. He's not impotent. God has a purpose. The fact that God allows evil men and women to continue in their unrighteousness is because he's working in the lives of his children, like you and like me. Let that truth strengthen you. 
Let it inform your prayers and motivate your evangelism. Because remember, God is calling his elect to himself as we faithfully proclaim Christ and proclaim the gospel. Sisters, lest we become weak in standing for the truth, lest we drift into sin, let's not forget the lessons that we've just learned. God judges sin and God extends grace. Don't miss the incredible juxtaposition between God's judgment and his grace in Genesis 5 through 11. It was mankind's wicked hearts that provoked God's wrath in the universal flood, but it was also mankind's wicked hearts that prompted our gracious God to establish the Noahic covenant. God is even now, today, he's holding back his judgment and he's extending his grace. But the day is fast approaching when the last of God's elect will be saved and the final judgment will come. We don't know when that day will come, but we must be ready. May God's hatred for sin and his grace for sinners strengthen us to live righteous and blameless lives in our wicked generation. But I know in a group this size that some of you are not capable of living righteously and blamelessly in this generation because you're outside of Christ. You are even now receiving the temporary benefits of the Noahic covenant, but you remain an enemy of God. However, because you're sitting right here right now, I know that there's still time for forgiveness for you. You aren't promised tomorrow, but you can receive forgiveness right now the only way to receive the righteousness necessary to satisfy God's perfect holiness and the forgiveness necessary to satisfy God's justice is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. The same sinful heart that plagued the generation of Noah exists in you today. Bring your sin and your life to Christ and receive the forgiveness and eternal joy that can only be found in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to just open your word and explain your truths, exalt your holiness and your justice and your mercy. Lord, be with these ladies as they go into their classes and discuss this lesson with less time than was, is, what I, is what is ideal. But Lord, let their discussions be profitable. Let these women Um, apply these truths and help us to live in a way that gives you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.